Folks, it's good to see you. Um, Last Sunday evening, if you were here with us, you'll know we dealt with two or three chapters in Jeremiah where we thought particularly about the, the failure of Judah's leadership and God's judgment, which was coming on them. And just as I'm beginning to speak here this evening, I'm remembering that the, the second uh, group of Israel's or, or Judah's leaders that Jeremiah focused on was, was the religious leaders, the prophets. And he talked about God's judgment on them because they hadn't listened to God's word and because the words that they spoke to the people were, were simply their own words. And it seems to me that when we gather in a community like this, we want to be sure that we're listening, first of all, to God's own word, and that whatever we say here and whatever message goes out here uh, truly is his word. So let me pray for all of us and for me that we, first of all, speak uh, God's word here and that, that we all hear God's word together. So let's pray. Father God, we're struck by what we learned last time we gathered last Sunday evening about how a whole nation can go off the rails uh, when its leaders don't speak your words and when the people collectively uh, don't listen. So Lord, humbly we ask for your help this evening in both the speaking and of the hearing. Lord, let it be your words that bring us together as your children here just now. Amen. David read a few verses from Jeremiah 25. We're going to look at at chapters 24 and 25, so have them open before you. Uh, Chapter 24 is a pretty short one. My reflections are going to be in two quite different parts. First of all, I'm going to think with you briefly in part one about Judah's exile and a few things that we learn about that in, in general terms, in mostly in chapter 25. And then in part two, uh, we're going to focus on Jeremiah himself and we're going to pay attention to, to what God was doing in him and why God was able to use him. So first of all, for a few minutes, the exile itself, because we learned some stuff in chapter 25 as the, the story of the book's been unfolding, we get a bit of an idea of where some of this has been driving uh, in, in the chapters right up to chapter 25. So three aspects of the exile I want to quickly flag up to you. The first aspect of Judah's exile uh, I want to think with you about for a moment is, is the method how God chose to do it. And it's quite surprising. Uh, look at what God says, the Lord says in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 25. Because you have not listened to my words, I'll summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I'll bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and I'll completely destroy them. Tell me this, since when and exactly how was Nebuchadnezzar God's servant? That's what it says here. My servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Well, according to Jeremiah, he's been God's servant all along. According to the prophet, 
This historical defeat of Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar is God working out his purposes, uh, judging his people. Nebuchadnezzar isn't a loose cannon, historically speaking, someone whom God wasn't able to control. He's someone who's been sent by God to work out God's purposes in winning a crushing victory over God's people. Nebuchadnezzar isn't a moral person. He's not a believing person. And I don't think he's even a person who's aware of the purposes for which God is using him. But nevertheless, Jeremiah assures us that this great Babylonian king, this huge empire that comes behind him, is all at God's beck and call. And the ultimate proof of that comes uh, later on in verse 12. If you follow it, verse 12 of 25, God says, I'll punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt. So there's an interesting thing going on here where God's chosen to use uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian empire to humble his people. But at the same time, he holds them culpable for the atrocities uh, that they've waged on Judah and on the other nations. That's their responsibility, the way they have acted. God holds them accountable for that. Folks, I think it's a helpful insight to know that all leaders, and even the worst of them, somehow in ways that we can't always explain or understand, are God's servants. Somehow, they remain answerable to him. And history shows us that even the most impregnable kingdoms easily come crashing down. they, They rise and they come crashing down whenever God ordains it. Sometimes we see things happening that we couldn't quite imagine. I grew up in a time, it seems weird now, but I grew up in a time when I couldn't imagine a world without the Soviet Union dominating a Cold War. I couldn't imagine life without a Berlin Wall. Many of us grew up in a time where we couldn't imagine life without apartheid in South Africa. These kingdoms rise and they fall when God ordains it, when it suits his purposes. But their rulers are always, like Nebuchadnezzar, servants of the Lord. The second aspect of the the exile, God's judgment on his people, that I want you to notice from this short overview, is that it isn't forever. It'll last, we're told, for 70 years. 70 years isn't an awfully long time. And actually, the 70 years which Jeremiah proclaimed here in chapter 25 ends up, even that's uh, an overestimation. It's a round number approximation. Because when Babylon, the kingdom that defeated Judah, uh, dragged its inhabitants into exile, that same empire fell to Cyrus of Persia uh, a mere 66 years later, 539 B.C., 66 years. It's another helpful insight, isn't it? God's judgment isn't forever. And that's because...
because of the purpose of God's judgment. God's purposes in his judgment are always loving. He's not out to destroy his people. He's out to discipline them. So God's never out to to wipe his people out, to annihilate them from the face of the earth. He's more like a, a parent with an unruly child or teenager. And he disciplines those whom he loves. And by the way, it's typical in the biblical account that God shortens or lessens a judgment that he's previously uh, said he's going to enact against his people. God can use whomever he likes. His, his judgment is never forever. And then in chapter 24, a chapter that we didn't get to read this evening, Jeremiah draws our attention to another aspect of the exile that I want you to notice uh, as we move forward through this book. The chapter tells, you can skim over it while I talk, talk about it, tells of another one of the dramatic visions. If you've been with us, you'll know that the book of Jeremiah has quite a number of these. God gives Jeremiah a vision. He shows him two baskets of figs sitting on the front steps of the temple, one of good figs, one of bad figs. And then God tells Jeremiah the meaning in verse 5. Like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. And he goes on to speak in wonderful terms about the restoration he's planning for these exiles. Listen to the imagery here. My eyes will watch over them for their good. I'll bring them back to this land. I'll build them up and not tear them down. I'll plant them and not uproot them. I'll give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God, for they'll return to me with all their heart. Folks, that last sentence, that's, that's one of the big kind of sentences of the Bible. We see that sentence repeated here and there in the Bible. They will be my people and I will be their God. God's saying that here about the guys who have gone into exile. He's giving them the most beautiful welcome back. He's promising that he will welcome them back fully. That whenever he sends them back, when he punishes them, and when he welcomes them back, it won't be a half-hearted welcome back. That's a very human thing to do. To judge somebody and then to hold a, a hardness or a coldness in your heart towards them. Not, not the Lord. He's judging them momentarily to restore them back into a full relationship with him. The Lord goes on to explain that that Zedekiah and his officials and those who remain in the land, they're the ones who are under his judgment. We need to bear that in mind as we we read further into the book over the weeks ahead. So in one way, this chapter gives us, and this image, gives us a very good summary of what's going on in the book of Jeremiah. The whole point of the exile is that God wants to restore his people to build them up and not to tear them down, to plant them and not uproot them, to draw them back to himself. This is the purpose of it all. Not a vindictive God letting off some steam, but a father chastising his children so that they'll come back to him. 
For the remainder of our time this evening, as I said, we're going to do something else. We've noticed here in chapter 25 some of the dynamics of the exile, what God's intentions with it all are. But we're going to do something that we've only done once so far in our series, and that is we're going to drop the spotlight on Jeremiah the person. We did this in chapter 2, sorry, in in chapter 1, but the second sermon of our series. Uh, We were looking then at how Jeremiah struggled as a, a young man to come to terms with God's call. And we looked at the lengths that God went to to encourage him and to to bolster him uh, early in his ministry. You see, the book of Jeremiah works on a couple of different levels. It it works on that national and political level as we watch to see what God's doing to the nation of Judah. But there's plenty of Jeremiah the person in here. And we're going to spend the rest of our time this evening looking at Jeremiah the person. This book works on a personal level. God calling a man, one from a priestly village in Anathoth near Jerusalem, and it deals with his personal journey every bit as much as the journey of the people of Israel, of Judah. We get a real glimpse, I think, into this journey here in chapter 25. I don't know whether it would have registered with you as we read, but look now at verse 3. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken it to you again and again, and you haven't listened. 23 years. The Hebrew word hashkem, translated here in the NIV by the phrase again and again, is translated in other translations like the English Standard Version using the word persistently. Jeremiah has been persistently bringing God's word to God's people. They may not have listened, but he's persisted 23 years and he's persisting still. This word hashkem, the word that's translated again and again persistently, it has a picture behind it. And and the the word picture is is the word shoulder or the picture of a shoulder. The the word shechem has its origins, has the same roots as this word. And if you know your biblical geography, you've maybe heard of of shechem. It's a, a village nestled between two shoulder mountains. It sits in between Ebal and Gerizim. But the word Shechem continued to develop in its meaning. So whenever you went on a trip in those days, you loaded the provisions for your journey on the shoulders of your donkey or on your own shoulders if you were too poor and you'd set off. So the noun shoulder began to to develop into a verb which had to do with getting up early, loading your, your own shoulders or the shoulders of your donkey uh, and setting off. In in that culture, if you were going to travel, when you know it's going to reach 35 degrees at midday, you don't travel in the middle of the day. You get up early. You're active before dawn to get saddled up, shouldered up, uh, and to get setting off. So eventually the word came to mean something like the activity of a person who gets up early before dawn 
and sets off with a purpose. Getting up, getting on with the job that needs done. That's the word to describe what Jeremiah has been doing for 23 years as he's been faithfully preaching God's word. For 23 years, he's been faithfully getting up every morning to hear God. For 23 years, he's been getting up to, to speak God's word to God's people. And for 23 years, says Eugene Peterson, the people slept in sluggish, indolent, and heard nothing. We're going to spend a bit of time thinking about Jeremiah's persistence. The word here, the word persistence or persistent, occurs 11 times in the book of Jeremiah. I'm going to flick two or three of them with you. So turn with me to chapter 7, verse 13. Chapter 7, verse 13. Just flick back those few pages. The Lord, through his prophets, says, While you were doing all these things, I spoke to you again and again. That's persistently. But you did not listen. In the same chapter, look at verse 25. The Lord says, From the time your forefathers left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. Flick over to chapter 11 and verse 7. From the time I brought your forefathers up out of Egypt until today, I warned them again and again, saying, Obey me. If you got a chance to look up all 11 of those occurrences of the word persistently, you'd see that they had to do with God calling his people persistently to repent and to come back to him. And this incident here in chapter 25 is the same but with a bit of a twist. Because Jeremiah is getting in on the act and he's saying that just as much as God's been persistent, so has he. He's been persistently coming and bringing God's word to God's people. 23 years with nobody listening. Does that sound like hard going? I think it does. There's no question that it was difficult. We'll see as we go further in the book, Jeremiah suffered enormous amounts of abuse over those years. He was mocked, rejected, imprisoned, He was wrestling with his own doubts and despairs from time to time. He thought of quitting. And I'm sure he wondered, what difference does all of this make? This preaching, this persistently doing the thing that God wants me to do. Why not just go with the flow? Nobody around me is persisting. Why not just join accommodate myself to them and their apathy. On one of the occasions when he's feeling very down about his faithful work, God confronted him. And it's recorded for us in chapter 12, verse 5. It's a, look it up because it's a really quite interesting image. 
chapter 12, verse 5. The Lord speaks to Jeremiah and he says to him, If you've raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? The Lord is throwing down a challenge for him. He's saying, Jeremiah, what do you want? Do you want a tame, domesticated kind of a life? Is your life with me a a Sunday hobby? Or are you going to come out and compete with the horses? God's challenge got him going. Jeremiah said to himself, actually, I do want to run with the horses. And the next day he was up at dawn and he was living urgently and, and persistently. In his commentary on the life of Jeremiah, Eugene Peterson points out that Hashkem, this word that we're focusing in on, this again and again, this persistently, it has a sunrise in it. Jeremiah is up before the sun to do his work. He's not a reluctant, bored conscript. There's an early morning freshness and a lightness about him. You see, Jeremiah, I don't think, I don't think he resolved to himself to stick it out for 23 years, no matter what. It's different than that. He got up early, before the sun. Each day was God's day, not the people's. He didn't get up to face rejection. He got up to meet with God. He didn't rise for another round of of the people's mocking. He rose to be with the Lord whom he loved. And that, that's the secret of his persevering pilgrimage. Not thinking with dread about the long road ahead, but but greeting each day with a, a newness and a freshness and obedient delight. Psalm 108, the psalmist says, My heart is ready, I'll awake with the dawn. I remember as a young guy, um, probably in my late teens, early 20s, I can't remember exactly where to place it, but I was chatting to an older man in our home group in the church I was in at the time. And I was getting to know him. I hardly knew him. He was new to the group. And he told me how he'd worked for 30-something years, can't remember the exact number, in the bus company. And there I was, a young guy, either training for working life or maybe just having started it. And I said, that, that must have been great to find a job that you loved so much that you stayed in it your whole working life. Never really liked it, he said. 30-something years. Never really liked it. We all know people who spend a lifetime in a job or in a marriage or in a profession where they're slowly and subtly shrinking as people. They're becoming less and less. They're persistent in one sense, and that is that they keep going with the thing day after day, but we don't find ourselves admiring them for it. If anything, we feel sorry for them. It feels like they're, they're stuck in some sort of moment that they can't get out of. They don't have the energy or the imagination. 
We might feel that way about some people, but not Jeremiah. Not, not here, as he's described in the biblical text. He's not stuck in a rut. He's committed to a purpose. There's no boredom or drudgery here. From what we can tell, his imagination's more alive after 23 years than it was when he started. His spirit's even more resilient and ready for tomorrow than it was that, that young man so unsure of himself. Jeremiah's not putting in the time. Each day is a new episode in the adventure of living the prophetic life. Author Joel Henderson was once asked how he'd managed to write all those books that he's written. And he, he said that he'd never, in reply, he said, I've never written a book. All I do is get up and write a page every day. And in a year, a 365-page book drops out. It's it's that ability to get up tomorrow morning and see it as the new day to be with God and to love him and to live for him. We've seen Jeremiah's persistence. Where did he learn that? Where did he adopt that quality from? Well, it wasn't from mimicking the people around him. If we can say that about Jeremiah... I'll tell you, we'll say it even less about the culture we live in now. This is not a culture that will teach us persistence. It's not a great strength of early third millennium living. Persistence. Where did Jeremiah learn it? He learned it from God. Jeremiah learned to live persistently toward God because God had lived persistently towards him. We see it in the book of Lamentations. If you know much about Lamentations, it's a a series of five poetic prayers. They're associated with Jeremiah himself because they're written uh, describing the suffering of God's people uh, during this period that we're studying in the book of Jeremiah. And in the center of the book, we read probably the most famous verse in the, the book, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. His mercies, they're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. There it is. New every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God's persistent isn't, it's not dogged, it's not dutiful repetition. It has all the surprise and all the creativity of a a new dawn. Sunrise. It's, It's a beautiful moment. And yet it's this incredible mixture of spontaneous and certain. There is no more certain repetition than the rising of the sun. And yet there's no more beautiful sense of new life than to see the darkness fade as as a new day dawns. You can't get bored of sunrises. You could sit and watch 
hundreds of thousands, and every time the darkness dispels and the new life comes, it would lift your heart. Most repetitive action, but never boring. If sunrises are like that, how much less would, would the work of God ever be repetitive in the wrong way or boring? This is where Jeremiah gets his persistence from. It's a creative constancy. He's up before the sun. He's listening to God's word. He's rising early and he's quiet and he's attentive and he's before the Lord. Long before the yelling starts, long before all the mocking and the complaining that he has to put up with, he's, he's here. He's centering. He's discovering and exploring with God. Jeremiah, I think, has prioritized his relationship with God. He's persistently rising early. He's listening to God. And he did that not because there was nothing else for him to do. Not because he didn't have any other options. Not because he couldn't think of anything else. He had chosen what Jesus Christ called when he spoke to Mary and Martha. He had chosen the one thing that's needful. To listen attentively to God. For many years throughout my Christian life, most of my teens and my twenties, I was in the habit of starting the day reading my Bible and praying. So whether it was before going to school or to university or later to work, I'd read the scriptures and I'd pray. And I found that harder to do in recent years, in my 30s, uh, during those years when we had young children. I've talked about that before at evening services here. It's hard to, to rush into the quiet place with God when the first thing you hear in the morning is, Dad, will you please wipe my bum? But things have changed. Our kids are a little bit more self-sufficient by now, a little bit more able to do some of the morning stuff themselves. So I've been able to return to my lifelong habit. The alarm goes at 6.20. I brew a pot of tea, and within a few minutes, my best friend comes and joins me. We read in silence together. Then we talk about what God's shown us in his word. And then we pray. We pray for the day ahead. We pray for our children. And we pray for some of you. And all of that has to happen then before the phone starts to ring and before the appointments and the calendar and before the emails start. Listening to God.
What are we doing to listen to God? How are we paying attention to him and to his word in our lives? How are we equipping ourselves so that this persistence, this ability to to run and to run and to run and to enjoy the running might be a quality in our lives as well as it was with Jeremiah. This evening we've considered Jeremiah. For 23 years the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken to you again and again. There's only one thing we need to do. It's to listen to God and to obey. There's only one day for us to do it and that day is today. Do it. And then do it tomorrow. And then do it on Tuesday. And for the rest of the week and the month and the year. Not as as a drudgery, not mindlessly, but with all the energies every day of a new sunrise. Let's pray. Father God, we've seen this evening, as we've looked at your word, your persistence. Even when you have to act in judgment, you're persistently loving and redemptive in your purposes. Time and time and time again, you called your people back to yourself. Father God, as we commit ourselves to following your son Jesus, we want to become more like you in every way. We want to be people who persevere and persist on our journey with you, of living daily for you. Father God, we pray that like the prophet Jeremiah, we would grow persistence, in us, and that we do it only by knowing you and loving you, by meeting with you and feeding on your word. Lord, we pray that you would meet with us in ways that renew us and strengthen us and energize us and refresh us. Do that for us tomorrow and this week and in the days that lie ahead. Amen.